You can open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We just finished last week. Remember Jesus' genealogy. Jesus is born to a virgin. Why did it matter? It had to matter. He had to be sinless. He had to come through, uh, he had to be a sinless man. He had to be the seed of God, not the seed of man. Jesus grows up. John the Baptist is the forerunner saying, there's somebody coming. And they say, are you, are you the Messiah? You seem to have some power. You seem to have authority. He says, no, I'm not the Messiah, but he's coming. I'm preparing the way for him. And then, of course, Jesus comes to be baptized by John, and the Father speaks audibly, out loud, miraculously in front of everybody and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Jesus, of course, passes the test. He conquers Satan all throughout his life. He conquers the flesh all throughout his life. He is victorious where we couldn't be. And that's the point, remember? Why does Jesus have to come? To be a good moral teacher? No, because he has to be the substitute and the sacrifice for all mankind. We're all guilty of sin. We all deserve the wrath of God. But good news, God loves us. So he says, I will come and I'll be the sinless sacrifice. But that's not really fair, is it? Because of course God can be that, which is why it's significant that God becomes man. Literally and actually, God becomes man. So that man now has to be tested and tried. Jesus is successful. And then after his tempting in the wilderness, he comes out, begins preach. he begins to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He calls a few of his disciples for starters, and then he begins to preach and teach in the synagogues and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. His fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, all those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, those paralyzed, And he healed them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from and from beyond the Jordan. He's gathered a crowd. Now here we are, Matthew chapter five, verse one. We're gonna go through verse twelve today. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the word. Jesus, the word made flesh, and then the word speaking to us. Lord, as we turn to the greatest sermon ever preached, we ask you to bring us revelation and light. God, help me to teach wisely and accurately so that your people would be fed, that they would be filled, that they would be trained, that they would be equipped for the work of the ministry that we would all see and know more and more what the kingdom looks like. Glorify your name through the preaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. This is exciting because we've heard, we, we saw in the last verses that we looked at last week, Jesus is preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God, but it still begged the question, what was he preaching and teaching? What was the message he was giving in those synagogues? What was the message that he was preaching and teaching? What was he revealing from the scriptures? And now we have what, what we have called on the back end, the Sermon on the Mount is what it's been famously been called, which is not the best title for a sermon because it'd be like me saying, this today's sermon is going to be the sermon from the pulpit. And you go, great, still don't know what we're talking about. But the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most famous passages of Scripture. And then in this passage particular in your Bible, it might even be labeled the Beatitudes, these blessings that we just read. And that's what Beatitude means. It just means the blessings or supremely blessed. 
So we see now, we've heard him mention the kingdom of heaven and show us some of it, but now the scripture says he opens his mouth and begins to teach. You might say, why would it say he opens his mouth and begins to teach? Well, he's done a lot of action. He's been teaching us about the kingdom without opening his mouth plenty. He's shown us what the kingdom of heaven is like by healings, by miracles, by the driving out of demons. But now in the Sermon on the Mount, as it's been called, our first verbal teaching that we get to hear that Matthew gives us is Jesus about his kingdom. So this is the significant moment where we go, okay, what is this kingdom all about? What's, what's the big deal? What's going to be so different? Now we can lean in. And, of course, we're only going to go through a, a portion of the Sermon on the Mount, but then as we go throughout the rest of it, you'll continue to see. You're going to be challenged, just like I am in the coming weeks, to see this is the bullseye. This is the target. This is what the Lord has called us to. It says, seeing the crowds. Pay attention here in verse 1 of chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So most theologians agree here that Jesus, seeing the masses, actually begins to separate from them and then goes and teaches his disciples exclusively. The Sermon on the Mount is not a message for the whole world. Yes, it is, and no, it isn't. The Sermon on the Mount is a message for disciples of Christ. That's who the Sermon on the Mount is for. It is not a good moral teaching for if everybody could just get on board with this. Well, here's the problem. You can't get on board with this unless you are made new, unless you are actually a disciple of Christ who has been transformed by the Spirit of God. You can't do any of these things any more than you can keep the old covenant law. So the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus is bringing a teaching to his disciples. There's significance here again. It says he sat down and they stood up. This is how teaching would have happened throughout most of history, actually. The teacher sits and the students would stand. So actually, we're going to change that here at Salt. Y'all are going to start standing for 40. I don't know why you're laughing. We're just trying to be more biblical here. And I'm going to sit down and y'all are going to have to stand for 45 minutes. Now, in your defense, Jesus' sermon is maybe like 12, 13 minutes if you even read it slowly. So I do, I, I am preaching a bit longer than him most of the time. No, we'll, we'll keep with our tradition. I, I think it's okay. We don't have a specific command, so we're all right with it. If that's okay with you guys. Yeah. I mean, I know y'all are a biblical people. I know you want to do what the word says. So if you insist on standing, you can, do, you can stand up in the back. But seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. Why? Because he's the one in authority. If you're the, one, if you're the one sitting, you're the one in authority. And the disciples are standing and listening to the teacher, to the master. So this sermon is not a moral code for everyone, as some have thought. Jesus is teaching his disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is a sermon for those who are already following. They are getting more instruction and more clarity on the new covenant and how to live in light of it. That's what's happening here. The Sermon on the Mount will cause you to stumble, and it will crush you like a rock if you think it is a checklist for you to become a Christian. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount and go, I've got to do X, Y, and Z to therefore become a Christian, you've misread and you've misunderstood the context of the Sermon on the Mount. This is a teaching to his disciples. So Jesus is saying, hey, you're my disciples. And they're saying, yes, we're with you, we're for you, we're about you and your kingdom. And he's saying, now let me teach you. Let me show you, like we often reference, the dartboard. I, I like to throw darts at my dartboard. I never hit the bullseye. It just doesn't happen. It still hasn't happened. Don, I've even moved closer where you told me I'm supposed to stand, and I even throw darts. I still am yet to hit it. But one day, I, I think I'm going to. I'm getting closer, but it baffles my mind how I still haven't hit it. But this is Jesus showing his disciples, there is a bullseye. There is a red center. And really, this is what the kingdom is. God's saying, I want my will. I want my ways accomplished at all times. I want my purposes accomplished. So I've got to show you what that looks like. So Jesus is showing this sermon tells you what the marks of the disciples of Christ should be. Well, I know plenty of people who haven't hit that mark. Yeah, me being one of them. And still, this is what the kingdom looks like. This is what we're pursuing. This is the standard that we are to be measured and that we will be judged by. So uh, this past week, I took Natalie and the boys to Monticello. So that was Thomas Jefferson's home. And I learned, not actually on the tour, but I learned later, Jefferson, and some of y'all may remember this from school if you learned it in school, Jefferson had a Bible that he literally cut passages out of. He razor cut them out, and he took those passages and made his own Bible. Jefferson would have fit in well today in our society um, in that sense. But Jefferson famously said that the Sermon on the Mount was the most sublime 
and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. So it's funny because in trying to give a great compliment, Jefferson gives a great insult. Thankfully for us, Jefferson was brilliant in a million ways. I like the guy in a a lot of different ways. Unfortunately for him, he was severely lacking in the one way that mattered most. He did not honor Christ as king. And consequently, he failed to recognize that Jesus is not is not just speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus is speaking from Genesis to Revelation through the Scriptures. And here in particular, on the mountain, he's revealing the kingdom of heaven and how his disciples will live. Jesus is not the moral teacher that Jefferson wanted him to be. He is the King of Kings, and he is the Messiah. And that is what Matthew continues to teach. Remember, the book of Matthew. Matthew wrote this letter for the Jews to continually persuade, convince, and encourage them to say, Jesus is king. Remember this Old Testament prophecy? And they go, yeah, that's only for the Messiah to fulfill. And then Matthew would go, here's how Jesus fulfilled it. And they go, interesting. And he does it over and over and over, pointing to Jesus is king. In Jefferson's Bible, he removes the fact that Jesus is born from a virgin. Jefferson's Bible, though, interestingly, includes the Sermon on the Mount. So he goes, if we could just get everybody to do this, I think that'd be fine. Oh, well, thank you, Thomas. Uh, thank you for your, uh, for your help there with the Bible. Uh, We really appreciate it. We don't, of course. It's foolishness, it's nonsense, and it's devastating, unfortunately, for his soul. He did that at age 77. So this isn't a a brash young man. Uh, This is a brash old man uh, who thinks he's wiser than God, unfortunately. So this is not what the scriptures are. This is not who Jesus is. What are these beatitudes, though? What are these blessings? We said this means supreme blessing. Jesus starts his teaching with these blessings. But some of these blessings... Don't really sound like blessings. <laughs> Blessed are the poor in spirit. No, I prefer to be rich in spirit. It seems better to me at, you know, at, at first glance and at first thought. But what we're seeing here is we're getting a glimpse of how upside down the world is and how right side up God's kingdom is. You also notice that as we look through the blessings that Jesus lists, it's a progression. You start to see, I'm spiritually broke, I'm poor. So I mourn, I'm humble because of it, then I'm hungry for God, then I'm different, I'm peaceful, I'm pure, and ultimately I'm persecuted because of it. It's a progressive thing that's going to happen as we mature in the kingdom of God. We recognize our brokenness, and we're going to walk through each of these blessings today. So we'll start with that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit? What are the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are those that know that they are undeserving of the grace of God. That's who the poor in spirit are. I know who I am. I get it. I don't think I'm a big deal. I don't think God owes me anything. And I come humbly and poor and I just go, I'll take crumbs that you would offer. That's the perspective that Jesus is laying out here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why would that be a blessing? Because God will give them the kingdom of heaven. It's only from that posture, it's only from that place of humility say, I deserve nothing, and I humble myself before a good and faithful king, that he goes, I can work with that. That's the only attitude, in fact, I can work with. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? They know that they're powerless. They know that they're spiritually helpless. They know that they're spiritually bankrupt, poor, bankrupt, no money, no dollars, I got, no, I got no righteousness in my own account where I can go, well, you know, that one time I helped an old lady across the street. So, you know, I've got that going for me. The Lord looks at my righteousness and is disgusted by it. It falls far short. Mine and yours and everybody else's. If we heaped up the best of the best, the Lord would say it's disgusting. It's filthy rags. Well, that kind of hurts my feelings. Yeah, spoken like a human who doesn't recognize the honor, the glory, and the holiness of a perfect God. Thankfully, he doesn't leave us there. This is his goodness. This is his grace, and this is his kindness. Of course, this is opposite, though. Someone who is poor in spirit, this is opposite from the world system. So this is what we're going to do with each of these. We're going to look at what did Jesus mean by it. Then we're going to look at how does the world interpret it, and then what is the promise that comes from it. The opposite is the world system and the flesh, what are we? We're proud of our accomplishments. I'm proud of who I am. I'm even proud of sin itself. Right? That's a common theme in our society now. It's one thing to be secretive about your sin and be like, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's wrong, but, you know, it is what it is. And now, no, instead, I want to have a parade. And not only do I want to have a parade to brag about my actual sin, you should celebrate my sin, too. 
And if you don't celebrate my sin, there's something wrong with you. This is wickedness. This is Satan's kingdom. This is the world system that's in total opposition to God's. But the poor in spirit humble themselves and, and they get lowly. What's the promise? What's the reward? Well, it's from that place that you can actually inherit the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. This is a safety. This is a blessing. This is the goodness of God. This makes us supremely blessed when we get in this position. The poor in spirit then lead to what? It leads to those who mourn. Because if I'm poor in spirit, I don't just stay there. It actually leads me to a place of mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, would this also apply to those who are mourning actual uh, loss of a loved one? Most definitely it would. And yet, in the context, again, we're looking at this progression of the person who is spiritually bankrupt, and they go, oh, I'm, who am I? Who am I that you would be kind to me, that, I, that you would love me? And then that person leads to this kind of mourning. They mourn their sin, and they acknowledge that, they're, that they are broken. They mourn their sin and they are devastated by the consequences of it, but they're also devastated just by the fact that it's who they really are. I'm going to show you an example of this. Go to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. In verse 9, we have Jesus telling about the Pharisee and the tax collector. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus said, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So a thief, a traitor, and very likely a very, very sinful lifestyle. So we've got already the Jewish people who are listening to this are going, Ah, a good, holy, righteous, godly, the preacher man, and ugh, someone that they would have hated. Tax collectors, that's the insult. So Jesus, they're already like, they've already picked sides. They've already decided who the good guy and the bad guy is, even as Jesus is beginning to, to share this with them. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Poor in spirit? Mourning? Not exactly. What did the tax collector say? But the tax collector, standing far off, so he didn't even want to press into the place of the temple where he knew why, because I'm poor in spirit. I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving no one owes me anything. I know who I am. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That was it. True, contrite brokenness, pleading for mercy because he knew who he really was. He was honest about it and said, well, you know, I don't steal from everybody. You know, there's plenty of things I've done right. I take care of my parents or who knows what he could have leaned on, but instead, God have mercy. What else could I say? What else could anyone say is the point that Jesus is making. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Like we said, this is the opposite of the perspective of the world. Man, be proud of who you are. And if somebody doesn't like it, that's their problem. It sounds cool. I mean, it feels good to the flesh. It's just devastating and damnable and will, will land me in hell. And if, and if you don't like who I am, then, then you, you just don't need to be in my circle. Like there's, there's all kinds of you go girl and you go boy attitudes. It's just pride. It's just pride. And it doesn't humble itself before the creator say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I need grace. I need help. I need comfort. And what is the promise? Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. Praise God. 
I'm mourning, I'm devastated. So what, what does that man get? He goes home justified, justified, a, a, a clever preacher way to remember this, just as if I had never sinned. Justified is the way you could connect that idea. One of them goes home forgiven. One of them goes home cleansed. The other doesn't. The other said, hey, God, why did he even come? I just came to let you know I'm amazing in case you forgot. Have a good day. The other guy comes to say, God, help me. Have mercy. It wasn't even like I commit to change. It wasn't even like this deeply repentant, I'm turning from my life like Matthew did. It was just, God, have mercy. I'm devastated in who I am. <laughs> what, what, I don't know what to do. But, one of the, but that man's justified. And then what's he going to get? What happens next in his story? I can tell you what happens next in his story because the word of God tells you, blessed are those who mourn because they'll be comforted. He was comforted. The Lord met him some way, somehow. Ultimately, yes, he still has decisions to make, sin to turn from, and righteousness to turn towards. But he was given the grace needed because he came with the humility necessary. That is the promise. There is a comfort. God gives grace to the humble. Who's next? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does meek mean? Meek means humble. So like we said, all these things are connected. Meek means humble. A great definition of meek is strength under control. Meekness is a black belt who doesn't have to go tell everybody that he's a black belt and who acts like the most humble guy in the room. He's the most dangerous man in the room. He can kill everybody in the room. And he has, and he has no ego about it because he's so secure in it. That's meekness. So in, ju- in jiu-jitsu, whenever I would roll with a black belt, I described it as being murdered by a stick of butter because they weren't violent, they weren't forceful, and at the same time, you had no opportunity to do anything that you wanted to. And it was so frustrating because I'm not a big guy, but I would, rest, <clears throat> I, would, I would roll with guys who were smaller than me, and in my mind, I'm just like, I'm a bigger man than him. I'm determined, I'm scrappy, I'm tough. These are true things. I should be able to beat him at least like once. Like I should be able to catch him. I should be able to force something. It's so wildly frustrating. And as a lowly white belt, like a nothing white belt, and that's the thing among white belts and blue belts and the lower belts, like there's all this like, hey, what are you? Hey, what are you? Hey, how many stripes do you have? There's all this posturing and all this positioning like, well, you know, yeah, I've been rolling jujitsu for a while now. And you got to be careful in jujitsu culture. Because, like, you know, I've done it. I'd be like, yeah, you know, so I've, I've rolled a little bit, and this guy's talking to me, and I'm just like, yeah. He's like, oh, how far along are you? I'm like, well, you know, I got a stripe on my belt, you know, so, which is like nothing. <laughs> it's, you start with no stripes, and you get one stripe when you, like, know how to, like, tie your gi on properly. Uh, so I'm like, you know, I, you know, I can tie my gi and, you know, do that stuff. He's like, that's awesome, man. So eventually, I finally... Stop talking about myself and my incredible jujitsu skill and ask him about himself. And he reveals, he's like, yeah, I've been doing it for a while. I'm like, that's cool. Well, what's your belt? He's like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I got black back in, you know, got his black belt like a decade ago. And now I'm just going, oh, man. If I could just rewind the clock two minutes, that would be ideal. Super humble, super meek, doesn't have to prove it. Doesn't have to explain it. And of course, I jump right in and brag on him as I should because I, I like celebrating people anyway. But, but that's the idea. What is meekness? It's, it's the black belt. And I don't have to throw my weight around. I don't have to let you know. When you need to know, you'll know. Yeah. But not because I'm going to be so forceful about it. So that's the thing. A white belt, you, you're rolling with a white belt, it's crazy. It's spastic. We don't know what we're doing. And we're trying anything. We're like, I can choke you with this, with this belt that came untied. Like, I'll use it. Like, anything, anything to win. And the black belt's just like, I'm like, how are you beating me? You don't seem like you're in a hurry. You don't seem like you're trying that hard. You're just better. Meekness is strength under control. Blessed are the meek. Meekness is a father wrestling with his children, right? Hey, I want you all to know that I'm bigger and stronger. No. No, it's uh, obviously daddy's bigger and stronger. Obviously daddy can do whatever he wants. But that's not what daddy wants to do. Daddy wants to bless and be gentle and be kind. Meek people don't throw their weight around. Meekness is not to be confused with weakness. It's not weak. It's not that I'm incapable. 
It's not that I'm afraid. I, am, I have all the capacity. The black belt, he has all the capacity to kill me. And he chooses not to, thankfully. Because I tap as soon as he's about to kill me. Or as soon as he's about to break one of my joints. I go, okay, okay, you win. He goes, I know. But meek people don't throw their weight around. In relationships, a meek person doesn't constantly flex. A meek person doesn't say, I just want you to remember, I'm the pastor. I'm the pastor. A meek husband doesn't say, hey, I'm the head of my wife. Well, you are. So that's very biblical and true and accurate. And at the same time, the leg of authority isn't the only leg that a husband stands on. Stands on compassion. Stands on responsibility. A meek boss doesn't say, hey, 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 I'm the boss. So... Authority matters in all of life. I think I, I think I might have come a little too strong against authority just then, so I need to build it back up a little bit. Authority is important. God has set authority in place. Uh, but a meek person isn't caught up in it. A meek person isn't egotistical. A meek person is the most dangerous person in the room. They have the capacity. They understand things, but they also have experience. So they're willing to be humble, and they're willing to take that lower seat. This is, of course, the opposite of the world. The world is saying, look at me, look at my accomplishments, look at, look at what I've done, pay attention to my status, recognize my power, honor me as king, don't disrespect me. And this is the message of the tolerance movement, right? Like, tolerance used to mean, like, I have to tolerate you. Right. <laughs> I tolerate Chris. Chris tolerates me. We're tolerant of each other. That, we, we all used to know what that means. Now tolerance means I have to affirm all of Chris's decisions. Chris has to affirm all of mine. Chris, you're not being very tolerant of me. Chris is like, no, dude, I do tolerate you. I'm like, no, you need to pat me on the back and congratulate all my decisions and everything I do with my life. And Chris goes, no, I can't do that. And I go, bigot. <laughs> How dare you, Chris? No, so obviously meekness says, I, I don't need you to acknowledge my black belt. Maybe it is a true black belt. Maybe it's something good. Maybe it's something you actually could be proud of, a healthy pride and joy. Or maybe it's just something that is irrelevant. But the point is, in all cases, I don't need anyone else to, to give or to do anything. That's between them and the Lord. Well, my wife won't this. Well, pray for her and continue to be, continue to grow and be the greatest man she's ever known. Well, my husband won't this. Well, continue to pray for him and become the greatest woman that he's ever known. You focus on the New Testament commands for a husband. You focus on the New Testament commands for a wife, not vice versa. Yeah, it never goes well. A meek person says, I can control me. I'll do what I'm called to do. I'll pray for others, and I'll leave the rest in the hands of the Lord. Amen. What's the promise to the meek? That they will inherit the earth. Why? Well, because they're not the one who's fighting to get the earth, but they are the ones who are willing to take the low seat at the table like Jesus taught us. When you're invited to the banquet, don't go, to the, don't go oh, I'm going to sit here at the head of the table because then the host of the banquet might come and move you and go, hey, hey, we actually had a seat for you down here. No. This walk of shame down to the seat that you were intended for. The meek person says, oh, where's the lowest spot? Hey, everybody else get a seat. I'll, okay, I'm, I'll stand over here in the corner. I'll be the lowest guy. And then let the host of the party come and say, no, 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 no. You're sitting here. Okay, then you get to be honored in front of everyone. That's a good thing. That's a blessing. Jesus told it as a parable to point it out. That's what the meek do. The meek say, I don't need everyone to recognize. And if I've taken the low seat, congratulations. I'm in my proper place anyway. Or if I'm promoted, praise the Lord. That's a blessing that he gives. This is what is meant when Jesus says in Matthew 19, the first will be last and the last will be first. So where is our progression going now? We're poor in spirit, therefore we mourn. It, it creates a humility, but there's also a strength because what have we done? We've inherited the kingdom. We've been comforted and now we're inheriting the earth. Now what? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Why is that a blessing? Because they shall be satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they are desperate and in need of God's water or they will die. This is not like, I'm a bit parched. This is, this is not the, the, we think of the deer panting for the water. Like, oh, like it's a beautiful painting and a deer just taking a sip by the stream. This is the idea of a deer who's been run ragged and a deer who is on the brink of death. The deer pants for the water. Where is a stream? Where can I find one? This is the heart that Jesus is saying. This is what we're to have. And we've talked about that before. Not just an emptiness. Many, many, many people are empty. Empty doesn't equal hunger. Hunger is a different thing. Spiritually empty, there's plenty of folks like that. Spiritually hungry, God says, I can work with that. It's a heart position. 
Many people are spiritually empty, but Jesus says, blessed are you when you're hungry and thirsty. Really? It doesn't sound like a blessing. Hungry and thirsty isn't a blessing. It's, the blessing is to be filled. Well, the blessing comes later. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Well, because they will be satisfied. If you hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, for his right way of doing things, for his kingdom, then you will be filled. This is a desperate pursuit of what God really wants. Of course, this is opposite from the world. This one's pretty easy to see. Hungry and thirsty in the world and in the flesh is, I want to satisfy the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's, that's the devastation that comes from the, from the broken upside-down kingdom. Jesus is saying, no, this is what we're supposed to be hungry and thirsty for, not the typical things that come most naturally and most easily to us. And then, of course, the promise. Why? What's the big deal? They'll be filled. What we ask him for, our Father freely gives. Blessed are the merciful. Why? For they shall receive mercy. Extreme mercy has been shown to you. Extreme mercy has been shown to me. So because of this, we need to give and continue to pass on what the Lord has graciously given. The, the parable Jesus tells, it's like I've, I've been forgiven of a billion dollars, and then I come and grab you by the throat because you owe me 20 bucks. I've been graciously forgiven of all my debt. My family was going to be thrown into slavery, and I went to the king, and I said, please forgive my debt. And he says, I have compassion, and I forgive you. And then I remember, you owe me 10 bucks. And I come to you ruthlessly, boldly, demanding and punishing you. What will the king do with me when he finds out that I have been merciless? The mercy that you and I use to measure is the mercy that will be measured back to us. Is that really true? Yes, it is. You shall reap what you have sown. I heard one pastor one time say it this way. You better sow a lot of grace because you're going to need it. You better sow a lot of mercy because you're going to need it. Man, sometimes I can be judgmental. Yes, yes, and yes. Uh, I should clarify, we are, we are all to judge. Judging is important. It's hypocritical judgment, which we're going to see in Matthew chapter 7, every atheist's favorite scripture, judge not. Uh, we're going to get to all of it. We're going to clarify it. We're going to teach it and, and, and read the full context, more than just those two words, I promise. Uh, but the point is, I lost the point. Something about judgment. Something about the Bible. Something about Jesus and God. It was really good. The mercy that's, that we use is the mercy that the mercy that we use is the mercy that will be used for us. So obviously, this is opposite from the world. This is op- opposite from the flesh. The world has a harshness. I want vengeance. I want accountability, but not for me. Not for me. I want it for them. I want them to pay. Lord, get them. <laughs> Lord, go go get them. And there is a time and, and place for those kinds of prayers. That the Lord's will, like I, I prayed earlier, God, punish the wicked and, and protect the innocent. Is anyone really innocent? No. But yes, in certain circumstances, there is such a thing as innocence, depending on what the context is. But this is our desire oftentimes. I want vengeance for them, but mercy for me. Well, vengeance is real, but the, the key that Scripture points out is vengeance belongs to the Lord. And that's the difference. That's the distinction. He says, no, no, no. Um, he doesn't oppose vengeance. He just says, you are not the one who can make an accurate judgment of when vengeance is appropriate. He says, I am. The Lord has vengeance. The Lord drowned the whole planet one time, remember? Everybody. That's not pleasant. It's in children's Bibles, but they don't put like the people like clawing on the side of the ark, thankfully. I think it'd be a bit much. So the Lord brings judgment, and it's right. Like, why would he do that? Why didn't he drown Noah is the question. Why didn't those eight people in the ark also drown? That's the better question. Not, I don't think he should have done that. No, he would have been right to reset with Adam, and, with Adam right away in the garden. Just say, game over. I'm done with, this, with these people. But because God is love, because God is gracious, because God is kind, he's patient with us. But he has vengeance. That's why he created hell. Hell was designed for the demons and Satan, his enemies. He said, you're going to suffer forever in torment. And unfortunately, it will also be for all those who don't follow and receive Christ. That's what hell was built for. So that is the vengeance of God. But the point is, you and I, he does not trust us with vengeance. He does not give us the authority. He does not put it in our jurisdiction. But we still have that temptation. 
against mercy and towards vengeance. They did this thing. And there is even, he's even put vengeance in place in the earth. That's why he has given the authority to the state, not literally like state of North Carolina or Virginia, but to the government to kill, to take human life. The scripture says it is, that is the role. He bears not the sword in vain. Police officers don't have a gun for no reason. Right? The, the, the government actually has the authority given by God to kill and take human life. Now, the state of Virginia rejected that in rebellion to God and said, we don't think we should. We'd rather you know, meddle in all kinds of other affairs instead of what the Lord has actually ordained government for. But that's what the government is for, remember? We have three spheres of influence and authority the Lord has established. Jesus is king over all three. The household, where he has put a husband in place in the, in the role of authority. The church, where he has put pastors and elders in authority. And the government, where he has put rulers and leaders in authority. Each of these answers to King Jesus. None of these rules over all the others. There's overlap. There's, there's, there's flow where all these things can connect. But ultimately, everybody is to answer to Jesus. So even, even there, he has said, there's a place for vengeance, but it's not for John Michael. You cut me off in traffic, now you're going to pay. There's nothing, there's nothing like, there's nothing uh, worse than what you've just done to me. And the Lord's going, really? <laughs> really? Is that as bad as it gets, Jam? Oh, yeah, Lord. Pour, bring down your fire upon them. Blessed are those who are merciful. Why? Because you'll actually receive mercy. Next is the pure in heart. So we're merciful, and now we're pure in heart. Why? What's the blessing? They shall see God. Doesn't get much better than that one. <laughs> I mean, you pick, you pick the blessing that you want here, and you pick your favorite, for they shall see God. Come on, who wants to see Jesus? Who wants to actually see him and walk with him face to face? Blessed to the pure in heart. This is so significant because this is what Jesus is constantly doing throughout his life and ministry. Because the Pharisees, the religious leaders in the day, remember, Jesus doesn't oppose the religious leaders because they are religious leaders. He opposes them because they are prideful. If they were humble, then they would receive all the mercy and grace that he intended for everybody. It is their pride that puts them in his condemnation. But remember, for the Jews especially, there were all these rites and all these rituals that the Lord had given in the Old Covenant. Cleanliness, ceremonial things, and all of the outward things that they were supposed to do. Your robe had to be like this. Your beard had to be like this. All these things in their society and culture had to be just right, but they missed the point. The Lord intended all these external things for, for them to recognize, hey guys, these are symbols and pictures of the purity that I want inside your heart and inside your mind and inside your life. That's what all the external was supposed to be. And they just took it as, I'm going to focus on the external and look amazing. And I'm going to make sure that people think I'm great. I'm going to make sure people see me differently. I'm going to make sure people actually hold me up as something. So now Jesus is continuing to, to break down that idol of their minds and their hearts and say, the pure in heart is what God is after. Welcome to the point. Oh, that doesn't make me look good in front of people. Yeah, welcome to being poor in spirit. Welcome, welcome to actually being meek. So this is the same for us, of course, keeping up appearances, projecting an image. But Jesus with all of his teaching, is showing that God was always concerned with the inward life, the heart of man. The law was given to point to the deeper things of the heart, but that's, not, but that's something that very few ever understood. The ones who understood it got killed for it. The ones who actually understood it and got it, they did away with the ceremonial things as an offense to the prideful, right? This is what Jesus does to the Pharisees. They say, hey, we have some specific rules on how to wash your hands, and then one day they noticed that Jesus and his disciples didn't wash the hands, didn't wash their hands. Well, your disciples didn't do the ceremonial hand-washing thing. And Jesus goes, it's not what goes into the body that makes you unclean. It's what comes out. It's what comes out of your mouth, not what goes into your mouth. And they're like, well, what about your hands? So Jesus isn't against hand-washing, but Jesus is still offending them deliberately. He's offending their sensibilities He's continuing to say, guys, you missed my point. You missed the word. You missed the spirit of the whole thing. No, we follow all the rules, but your heart is far from me. And this is what all the prophets came against Israel for. And this is why Israel killed all the prophets. They sawed them in half. They burned them alive. They cut their heads off. Why? Because they were men who loved God and said, hey, guys, your hearts are far from him, and God is disgusted by your sacrifices that you bring to the altar. And they said, how could that be? We do everything just right. We chop up the bull, and then we burn it here, and then we do the burnt offering there, and we do doves, and we do this. 
And he says, it's disgusting and, and it stinks in God's nostrils. And they said, let's kill this guy. We're doing everything right and he's just picking on us. He's not very tolerant. He's not celebrating our sacrifices. Let's kill him. We're getting to the persecution. We'll get there in a second. You're getting close. The pure in heart will be persecuted. And here's the thing, saints. Oh, no, sorry. You're making me get ahead. Nice try. We won't go there yet. <laughs> so Jesus is showing that all of, the, all of the external things that God had given throughout the Old Covenant were pointing to the heart. You need a new heart. The law was actually a frustration to us because the law revealed that we couldn't obey the law. That's what the law was given for, to frustrate the heart of man and go, I can't do it. And God will finally go, are you poor of heart yet? Have you actually been humbled yet? No, I'm going to double down and I'm going to put extra rules in place on top of your rules because your rules weren't enough. That's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees looked at the law of God and they said, well, if God says you're not allowed to step over here, we're going to make a rule that says you can't even step over here. That's even extra holy, right? And Jesus is going, no, that's stupid. Uh, I said what I said in the word. I wanted you to obey it. I know you can't, but this is just, this is bondage. And this is more bondage and more bondage. It's just religious bondage. There's other bondage. There's other kinds of sinful bondage as well. But this is one form of bondage. So it's easy to get focused on that external performance. But Jesus in this sermon and throughout his life and ministry shows that the outward, all the outward comes from the inward. And this is, of course, the opposite of what we see in the world. We, we think that, no, it's the, the outward is what matters. And the inward, yeah, maybe we'll get around to it at some point. What's the promise? What's the blessing? They shall see God. Next, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers. What is a peacemaker? This is a person, again, we're maturing in the kingdom now, and we're making peace in every possible way. Like we've talked about before, bringing the kingdom of God, bringing the shalom of God. This is not a person who compromises truth. This is a common misconception. I define it this way. There's a difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. <laughs> peacekeeper is, can't we all just get along? I want to avoid conflict no matter what because I'm afraid and because I'm weak. This person isn't meek. They're not strong and saying, hey, I can navigate this with wisdom. They're fearful, cowardly, or compromising. They're not standing firm in truth. A peacemaker still tells truth. A peacemaker still emphasizes truth. But we can never make compromise. We can never compromise with evil when we're bringing God's calm. So the peacemaker is doing what, the opposite of what the world and the devil do. Let me ask you something. When you watch the news, do you feel a deep peace? Do you think that their motive is to make you feel peaceful? Remember when Rona was happening? They had like the death count on the screen. They're like... Somebody else, somebody else. Be afraid. Don't be at peace. Come back in in 20 minutes. Actually, don't stop watching because now we have another expert here to teach you something else. These aren't peacemakers. These are warmongers. These are people who are pursuing what feels good to the flesh because if we're honest, doesn't the flesh kind of like that stuff? If it didn't, then those businesses wouldn't exist. And I call them businesses accurately. Those businesses wouldn't exist. Those businesses wouldn't be thriving if our flesh didn't like gossip and discord and strife and conflict and ooh. I mean, like YouTube is always trying to show me different videos. It's saying so-and-so gets owned by so-and-so, <laughs> you know, like because I, you know, I watch a lot of sermons and different spiritual content, and then it'll take like so-and-so totally slams this person like in debate or something, you know, so they're, they, they're, they're trying to entice me, and then sometimes I am enticed. I'm like, ooh. I do want to see so-and-so get owned. I, I, do, I do want to see this, this, you know, heretical professor get owned by the college kid who, who uses the scriptures. Um, why, well, I love truth, so that's a good thing. But, so it's easy, though, to be tempted into like, oh, tell me, the, tell me more of that story. I can't believe they did that. That's not what a peacemaker does. I can't believe it. Well, can you keep a secret? Yeah, well... If you tell anybody, just tell them not to tell anybody, and then, and then we'll be good. Not a peacemaker. A peacemaker is truly peaceful. A peacemaker is truly looking out for someone, caring, caring for people. Uh, a, a peacemaker will do damage control for a person's reputation as opposed to more exposure to them. That's loving. That's gracious. That's kind. They're not a liar, and they will not affirm your sin or your nonsensical, heretical beliefs. 
They won't do that at all. They won't go, well, I don't want to make Thanksgiving awkward, so I'm just going to let the whole family continue to go on with this nonsensical, idiotic, unbiblical conversation because I'm a peacemaker. No, peacemaker would still speak up truthfully. They don't get to cast a vote for everybody else's decisions. But as far as it is in our control, we seek to live at peace with people. Also, at the same time, while being people who are completely emphatically set on the truth of God and that there is such a thing as a capital T truth and it's not based upon my opinion and your opinion or the flavor of the week in our culture. Why? What's the big promise? What's the big deal for the peacemaker? They shall be called the sons of God. Good news again. And now we're closing. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is the same blessing connected here. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Saints, when you live pure of heart, when you live as a peacemaker, it reveals that there will be conflict. Okay, So that already does away with the false assumption of, if I'm a peacemaker, then there will always be peace in my life. No, if you're a peacemaker, you could get sawn in half, burned alive, or have your head cut off. Ask Jesus. He was a peacemaker. But being, being a peacemaker is not the same thing as being the nicest fellow that anybody's ever known. The nicest fellow that anybody's ever known is never going to say anything that anyone could be offended by. Jesus, not so much. So we can already see that being a peacemaker leads to conflict. It's the very next point that's made. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not blessed are those who are persecuted for being an obnoxious jerk, but blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But here's the point that I was going to give to you earlier that you almost made me give to soon. When you are persecuted, no one is going to say, I'm persecuting you because you love Jesus. No one will ever say that. That's not what they said about the prophets who actually love God. They say the opposite. They say the opposite about you. So if you're waiting, if you're expecting someday when the persecution comes against you, if you're thinking people are going to go, it's because you're such a good, righteous, and holy person that I hate you and I'm persecuting you. That's why we didn't give you this raise, or that's why we edged you out of this job, or that's why I'm not going to be your friend anymore, or that's why. No one's ever going to say that. They're going to say all the things that culture currently hits you with. You're a bigot. You're closed-minded. You're an idiot. You're old-fashioned. You're a fundamentalist. That's how the accusation will sound. But be of good cheer because you're in good company. Nobody came to Jesus and said, you know what? We're, we're killing you because of all that. Jesus said, hey, for which of the miracles that I've done do you want to stone me? <laughs> Biting sarcasm. I love it. Gives me permission. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Biting sarcasm, witty, insulting, harsh when necessary with prideful people. But he didn't just go, oh, I yield, I yield, I yield. They said... No, 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 we're, we're not killing you because of that. We're killing you because, again, they, then they pick the thing that they hold against you. You know, it's you Christians. You Christians think, and then they insert basic uh, belief that Christians have held for 2,000 years. Yeah. You Christians think, yeah, we, we do. Christians yeah. believe the Bible. I didn't think that was a newsflash. Yeah, I didn't realize that was news to you. Well, my brother's a Christian. He didn't believe that. I don't speak for your brother, but I am going to do my best to speak for the Lord. Blessed are those who per are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But your righteousness, and as persecution increases in the earth, will never be along the lines of, hey, FYI, this is coming to you because you love God. And then you can go, oh, that's so comforting. I feel better about it. The same thing happened with the prophets. They killed them because the prophets spoke truthfully. They killed them because the prophets were actually trying to make peace between God and man. This is the opposite of the world. The world tells you, blessed are you when everybody celebrates you. Bless you when everybody cheers for you and pats you on the back. That's when you're blessed. When the whole crowd is going, yeah, you got this. We affirm your every choice. Live your best life. Do your thing. Slay, queen. Or king. We are promised persecution in the scriptures. Promised persecution. In fact... Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, I've never experienced any persecution. <laughs> you, you, might want to, uh, you might want to look into that. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
There will be, there will be kids who don't want to play with you. And they're not going to say, it's because you're a good Christian and you love the Lord. They're not going to say it that way. They're just going to go, y'all are dumb. Y'all are mean. Y'all have rules. <laughs> y'all don't laugh at my jokes. Y'all don't look at the things I try and show you on my phone. They're not going to say, it's because you're holy young men who follow Christ. That's not how they're going to put it. And they're going to make fun of you and go, oh, little goody two-shoes. That's the, those are the kind of phrases that, that you can expect and much worse. <laughs> much more that I won't say. What's the promise? Only the kingdom of heaven. The promise is the kingdom of heaven and a great reward in heaven. What is our great reward in heaven? His name is Jesus. That is our great reward. Our king. Church, the, the servant is not better than the master. So if he experienced persecution, obviously we're going to as well. And the crazy thing about all of this is all these blessings, are, they're paradoxical. I wouldn't have seen that. I wouldn't have thought about it that way. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. No, Lord, I wouldn't have thought that way, actually. I think it'd be more of a blessing to not to. He says, no, why? Because your reward is actually great in heaven. Great reward. How does it get any greater? Well, I don't know, but he has a way. He's good and he's faithful and he's going to make it true. This is good news. Good news. The kingdom that is right side up, the kingdom that is full of light, the kingdom that is full of hope, this is who you are. This is what you're about. This is what the target looks like. And as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to continue to look and see. Jesus saying, you've heard it said this way, physical, external thing. They go, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, I tell you a harder, stronger way that's more based on the heart. They go, oof, this is tough. Only a new man could live this way. And that's exactly what we are in Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the blood of Jesus. Jesus, thank you for pouring out your life as the sacrifice for many. All of the guilty now get to be treated like the innocent because the innocent was treated like the guilty. We honor you. Lord, we ask that you continue to massage your truth and your word into our hearts and into our minds. Renew our minds and continue to bless us with clarity and revelation so that we would see things the way you do. Help us to truly start by being poor in spirit. To keep seeing that we need you. No matter how long we've been walking with you, that we would not become prideful or puffed up in our knowledge, but that we would be full of love and gratitude, eager to see your kingdom expand, eager to tell others the good news about the king who is loving, gracious, and quick to forgive sin. And grow us to maturity, Lord, that we would be bold, that we would be truthful, and that we would not be persecuted for no reason, but that we would be persecuted for righteousness' sake. In Jesus' name. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine down upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you great peace. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.